Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the early Christian movement. Today, we are here with Michael, our resident ephesiologist, Andrew Johnson, associate pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas, and I am Matt Till, church planter and lead pastor of Restoration Church in Lake Zurich, a suburb of Chicago. It's good to be with you guys today, this afternoon. Hey, nice to be with you guys as well. Well, today we are going to be talking about uh, this idea of missiological theology, which could sound really heady and kind of scary to some people. And for those of you who are like, I don't know what you just said there, Matt, please do not turn this off yet. Uh, We're going to try to digest this a little bit and talk a little bit more about what this concept of missiological theology is, because it actually has a lot of important bearing on the ephesiology or the concepts in which we've been discussing here in this podcast. So, Michael, what is missiological theology? Can we just start there for a moment? Yeah, let's do. Uh, missiological theology is a an attempt uh, that we are taking to connect God's story with the story of a culture. And um, and, and so there's a lot in that when we talk about missiology and, and what that is, and of course, theology and what that is. Um, on previous podcasts, we talked about this idea of, of what did the early church do or those early missionaries do to launch the movement? And uh, th- so we unpacked a bit about missiological exegesis. Um, I can't remember if we actually used that term or not, but that's, again, one of those big terms um, where we're thinking about how, how do we understand culture? How do we exegete culture? Um, what is it in the culture that we need to understand in order for us to effectively connect God's story with that culture? And so in that exegetical, missiological exegetical process, we're, we're learning about culture by having conversations with the people in the culture. Uh, we're studying the history of the culture. Uh, we're understanding the practices of the culture. And then, and then uh, the, the second part of that, uh, as we saw in Paul's life in Athens, for example, was beginning to reflect um, ourselves on what it is that we believe. And then, and then there's the third uh, aspect of this, and that's the missiological theology. That's actually where we are making the deliberate attempt to connect God's story with the story of that culture. So, Michael, where's a good place for us to begin as we're talking about these ideas and this concept of missiology or or mission and the study of mission and the study of a culture and then applying our theology to that culture? Uh, We've obviously been looking at Ephesians or Ephesus, actually more particular, and not just located within the book of, uh, of Ephesians and the New Testament, but there are also other places that we should be looking. Yeah, and that's what I love about the church in Ephesus and um, and its prominence in the New Testament. We've mentioned this before, but I think it's a good reminder that uh, nearly 44% of the New Testament specifically deals with the movement in Ephesus. And so we commonly think of, you know, the letter to the Ephesians that was really a circular letter that went to many of the churches in Asia Minor. But we also uh, then think about the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy as he was the so-called uh, the pastor. Uh, uh, others will talk about him as being the church planter of uh, the church in Ephesus. Uh, and so Paul writes those two epistles to him, First and Second Timothy. But there are so many other letters that have that connection as well. Um, we think of First Peter. Uh, Peter is writing to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, first, second, and third John are all written from the city of Ephesus. Um, we think of First Corinthians. Uh, Paul is in Ephesus when he writes that letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, and, and you can see even in that letter uh, the, the bearing that Ephesus has on what it is that Paul's writing. Um, but one of the, I think, one of the really interesting places where we see this missiological theology emerging in just a beautiful way is in the Gospel of John. John is writing from the city of Ephesus, um, and uh, and so what he writes there is trying to specifically address 
some of the the cultural issues that uh, have presented some challenges to those early Christians. Uh, Michael, I think that's actually really fascinating that, uh, and we, I know we've had some discussions on this, of this concept of this idea that John is writing from Ephesus um, and obviously using his cultural context then to share his gospel. What is some of the evidence that we find in the passage? I'm going to put you on the spot here for a moment. But what are some of the evidence that we see in the book of John that suggests that John was writing from Ephesus? Well, we know that John's gospel is unique from the what we call the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, he tells some unique stories in, in that gospel. And some of those unique stories are deliberately connecting with some of the cultural issues in Ephesus. But I think probably more than any, the most compelling evidence for John addressing or, or being written from Ephesus and specifically dealing with Ephesus is his prologue. Um, he has this wonderful prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. And we know that, that the Greek here that uh, John is using is logos. And at the time that John is writing, um, and, and you know, biblical scholars and scholars on the Gospel of John, uh, they don't so much differ on this issue, but there, there does seem to be a consensus that John might be dealing with a, a, a nascent form of Gnosticism or Docetism. Um, it, How would you that, define that? Yeah, well, of course, Gnosticism is this idea that there's the spiritual and the physical, and it's this, the, the spiritual that is important. Um, that emerges really much later in the second century and Irenaeus in particular in his, uh, his text against heresies is addressing specifically Gnosticism among other things. But um, Docetism though, is this belief that Jesus um, simply appeared to be in the flesh, that he wasn't uh, in reality uh, in the flesh. Um, and so that 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 heresy doesn't really emerge until into the second century as well. And so for those, I, and I hate to say this because I'm not necessarily a, a, a Jahanine uh, scholar, but um, it seems to me that we are reading a lot into the Gospel of John uh, when we're suggesting that there might be nascent views of Gnosticism and Docetism uh, that that John's addressing. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. And I think um, the unique aspect of John, and I agree, I think that the prologue uh, is is very unique uh, compared to the other three Gospels that we have. And it is it does seem to lend itself to very much of a Greek audience um, versus a Hebrew one. Um, and especially with the appeals to uh, the Logos, for example, uh, as you already cited. It does suggest that this obviously would have a Greek audience. So perhaps not if we can't pin it into Ephesus uh, directly and very overtly, uh, at least it would certainly be speaking to Asia, Asia Minor uh, and a wider Greek audience across the Mediterranean. What, what, am I correct in saying that at least? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I would, I would pin it directly to Ephesus. And because of that prologue, and, and this is why, um, uh, in the 500 BCs before, you know, I always think of uh, Bill and Ted's uh, great adventures. Uh, it it is excellent. Yeah. <laughs> excellent adventures. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can't they, believe he's going there, but go on. I know, yes. I'm sorry. I can't. No, Every do time it. I think of Socrates, I think of Socrates. Um, but, uh, and so it makes me chuckle. That's, that's one of our, our family's favorite uh, movies. But anyway, uh, th that being said, uh, it, there was a philosopher before, the, before Socrates or Socrates uh, uh, th that went, of course, went by the name of Her Heraclitus. And Heraclitus was from Ephesus, and he wrote a small text, and we only have the fragments of that text uh, in existence today, but that text was called On Nature. And specifically, he wrote about the Logos and, um, and the significance of the Logos. And so he developed this whole kind of Logos uh, philosophy, if you will, that became immensely popular in Ephesus as well as in Asia Minor. Uh, 
And in fact, it was so popular that his book uh, was housed in the Temple of Artemis. And so anybody could come to the city of Ephesus and read about the Logos. And, um, uh, and so it just seems so apparent to me that when John is explicitly talking about the Logos, that he is addressing the Logos philosophy that was already in existence. And th there was an understanding in this Logos philosophy that, um, that the Logos had certain characteristics that could be equated to a, a supreme being. And, uh, and the fact that John now is making that deliberate connection, that the Logos was in the beginning, uh, the, the Logos is God, that, uh, that he is making clear what was a little bit foggy in that early philosophy. And, uh, and furthermore, um, about, see, John, you know, and we get into the dating issue of John, and um, I, I'm, I'm not quite ready to declare when exactly John was written, although I, I am leaning more and more to a, a pre-Second Temple destruction uh, hmm. that, that John would have been writing in. Um, that's making a little bit more sense to me um, because he doesn't explicitly deal with the destruction. And there's some other things too that are going on in, in uh, not only in uh, Israel, but in the rest of the world in relationship to the apostle Paul um, that make me think that John was, had made the move to Ephesus. But that being said, um, if he's writing, you know, prior to the destruction of the Second Temple or after, which the traditional dating is in the uh, 90s, um, uh, one of the interesting historical pieces to this is that about 60 or so years later, another philosopher, a Christian philosopher by the name of Justin, uh, who ultimately goes or is known by the name Justin Martyr, is um, writing, and he makes the the assertion that, uh, along with Socrates, uh, Heraclitus was a pre-Christ Christian, and, uh, and because he saw in this Lagos philosophy and in this philosophy that was emerging in. Uh, in the Greek world, that it was pointing to God, and uh, and and so it was so much pointing to God that Justin would feel very comfortable in saying, you know what, these guys these guys are pre-Christ Christians, and um, and it, yeah, so it presents a, a very interesting gospel for us to look at as an example of missiological theology. It seems uh, interesting just even looking at the book of John and um, that prologue again. Um, you had mentioned right at the beginning of, of our conversation here, Michael, this idea that uh, if we're taking missiological theology, so basically what we're doing is we're trying to tie God's story into our story, uh, which I think is so eloquently put, that um, when we look at John's gospel even, uh, he is really functionally doing that. He is literally taking the story of God and applying it to the story of Ephesus or the story of the Greek culture of the time, right? And from, from sentence number one, those first few words, in the beginning was the, logo, the logos, the logos, the, the word. And, and that's like, okay, yes, I, if I'm of Greek culture and I am a study, uh, you know, I've been studying Greek philosophy, I would know what this, the word logos means. I would understand what this phrase means. So right from the beginning, uh, John is appealing, and I'm getting ready to say Paul here, but now we're John. John's, uh, you know, appealing to the Greek culture instantly, right? And then he flips it. And then it's like, now here's where God comes in, <laughs> right? Uh, and yeah. it was the word that was with God um, from the beginning. And so um, he's immediately tying these two things and bringing them together. Um, and obviously we see this, the same concept that we've kind of really throughout, uh, the rest of the book of John, is this kind of, is this what missiological theology does? Is this, is this what good theology does? I, I, yeah, I, th I mean, absolutely. That's what missiological theology does. And it's what good theology should do. I mean, theology is about the study of God. Um, but 
obviously from the word itself, but it should connect with where we are. Um, it, it should help us to see God's story and our story intersecting at some point. Because, I mean, if we genuinely believe in God's sovereignty, which we do, then those stories have to connect. And uh, a part of our role, then, as we are thinking in terms of how we engage a culture, is, you know, praying like Paul prayed uh, for the Ephesians, God, give us a spirit of revelation and wisdom so that we would know the, the light of Christ. And, uh, and for us, we want to know that so that we can communicate it effectively. And John, I, I mean, he just does an absolutely brilliant job. And it's funny to say, I mean, it's inspired scripture, right? And naturally, it's going to be brilliant. But when we begin to see these little nuances about how he's making this connection, then it's not only the prologue, but all through, you know, those unique stories. And another example of this is um, uh, John's use of the word cosmos. Um, In his um, gospel, he uses it 58 times, which is more than the other three gospels combined. I think those three combined, uh, it's in the neighborhood of 20 or so times. But John is, is making this connection that, you know, Jesus isn't just the, the savior of the Jews. Jesus is the savior of the world. He's the light of the world. And uh, that John is making explicit to a, a culture uh, that this God is for you. And his story connects with your story. And so John kind of uh, elaborates on that. And for example, um, you know, when we read in chapter two of the gospel of John in the wedding in uh, Cana, that John is making this connection uh, between Jesus and the wedding and Artemis, who was the goddess of matrimony in Ephesus. And uh, he, he's, he is setting Jesus up as being greater than Artemis. Um, in chapter 4, you know, when, when uh, Jesus is at the well and the woman from Samarita, at Samaria comes. Uh, again, that's another deliberate connection that John is making with the prominence of women in the culture of Asia Minor and in Ephesus. And... Um, and so he's recognizing the significance of those cultural pieces and showing that, look, Jesus is just as interested in women as you all are in Ephesus. In fact, he knows about the acts of, of this woman, who, interestingly enough, is acting in a very similar way as the consortium, the woman who would who would go into the consortium where men would be bathing and uh presumably philosophizing, if you will. Um, Sometimes, although it wasn't all the time, uh, when the women would come in, there would be sexual favors that are exchanged. But the women that were a part of these consortiums were thought of as being women of intelligence. They would sit uh, and have a a, uh, conversation with these men on an intellectual level. Um, and so it's interesting that John is bringing in the Samaritan woman's story, who he identifies as a woman who has had multiple relationships, and as we learned later, is a very prominent woman in her city because everybody listens to her when she goes back and, and is talking about Jesus. Um, it, there is a tie that John is making between the Ephesian culture and Jesus and and. And he is helping them to see that Jesus's story connects with their story. I think one of the uh, most difficult things I find as a pastor and one who uh, seeks to um, connect God's story with our story is that actual task is I find that a lot of our training has been built on um, theological training and the study of the Bible and the study of uh, Jewish culture and uh, some of the, you know, original Greek culture. Um, but I find myself digging into theology and understanding doctrine and then trying to reshare that doctrine. But sometimes I, it's that, it's that br- bridging that gap uh, over 2000 years is now taking 
the doctrine uh, that we uh, mine through systematics, uh, through systematic theology. Um, we, you know, we kind of go down the, we, we go down those roads. We look at biblical theology. We go down that road and we start, you know, kind of mining the scriptures. And then it's like, okay, now I've got some truth here. I've got understanding of uh, who God is and some of these, these core level doctrines. And then I go to, now I got to bridge the gap over 2000 years. Uh, that's, that is like one of the biggest challenges that I have. This is why we, you know, every sermon, every preached is always going to have the explanation, illustration, application, point one, point two, <laughs> explanation, illustration, application, point number three. And it just, it's a, re, it's a repeat. Anybody who's an uh, expositional preacher will, will tell you that this is, this is exactly the, the way in which we have, have tried to do this and, and uh, the, the, the philosophical, the methodological approach to preaching. I find it, that is like the greatest, most difficult task. Um, but even in this conversation, I'm just kind of all of a sudden reminding myself of like, you know, it, it's interesting. I guess, you know, Michael, you're helping me understand like even John was trying to do this very task with his gospel, which is so eloquent and so beautiful. And this is also why we give, we ask, you know, somebody who's interested in, in Jesus and somebody who's a new believer, we, we point them to John right away because it's the perfect book that's written to a secular audience. Andrew, I want to, you haven't said much, but I want to, I want to have you chime in here. Uh, do you resonate with what I'm saying? And secondly, how do you as a pastor who gets preaching opportunities and opportunities to sit and disciple individuals attempt to bridge the gap from 2000 years to, you know, we, we talk about how do we make the Bible relevant? How do we, but I'm just simply saying, how do we do, how do you practically do missiological theology in your context? I think this sort of conversation, it seems to me, uh, we are holding a, uh, a magnifying glass to things that we are doing, but we don't really think about, mm-hmm. um, such that as a pastor. So I, I was grinning, Matt, as you were talking about trying to bridge that gap, because right now uh, we as a church are going through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews to the Hebrews. And so... <laughs> there is this very much necessary and large chunk of time that is already needing to try to educate people on this culture that we are so far removed from as far as, you know, if you aren't growing up in the church, you're the whole high priest system is not familiar with you. And yet, there is such weight placed in the book on Jesus being this great high priest and serving in the order of Melchizedek and all of that. And for some people who love the nerdery of it, it's joy filled for people who are not, that is a massive gap that is needed to be bridged. And so I do chuckle because so much of a sermon is trying to say there is something of worth here but I need to figure out how I can tell you that it's worthwhile to you. And that right there really, and this is what I'm saying, it's like a magnifying glass. That's the essence of communication period to anybody at any point. It's not just in a sermon. If I have something that I want you to know, I cannot just say, here is the information, deal with it. If I actually care that you care about it, or if I think it's relevant or necessary for you to take in, then what I'm going to have to do is say it in such a way that you understand or that you desire to have that. And uh, missiological theology seems to be this very necessary process that just like we talked about in regards to uh, dialoguing with somebody Mm -hmm. who doesn't yet know Jesus or you know what? Anybody who's human, you got to know them. You have to see what, who they are and what they care about before you bring it to the table and just say, Hey, this is really great thing. Um, yeah. And I, and I, you're spot on Andrew. And I think what you've just described is missiological theology, right? It's, it's getting at, you know, what is the essence of what that text said and how do I connect it to my story? Um, and so it's not missiological theology isn't, just simply a activity that missionaries do. It, we're, we're all about that. I mean, the pastor uh, in, a, in a 
uh, majority Christian context is trying to make those connections, the story of God to the story of the people in our churches. And, um, and so it's something that we all wrestle with and, um, and, and need to focus on so that that story becomes our story and not just the story of the Hebrews, for example. I think there's a question that um, it's popped up and I'm, I've been quiet for a while because I'm trying to figure out how to formulate it. If, if our focus is on this missiological theology and approaching a culture, a contextual theology, essentially bringing, bringing this good news, the story of God in such a way that the local culture understands it. Uh, if I play the devil's advocate, isn't there a great worry or danger in changing the theology or the story of God because my local context is so different from the one that John was writing to in Ephesus, the, um, the Corinthian context in which Paul was writing. Um, are we in danger of changing God's story because we are so contextualizing it and have a desire to reach them missiologically? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there, there is always a danger in this type of activity. And that's why we emphasize so much as we're talking about ephesiology of doing theology and community. And that danger is mitigated as we are coming together in a, in, in a hermeneutical community, if you will, a community that is interpreting scripture together, um, that, that helps to mitigate that danger. It doesn't mean that uh, we're going to completely mitigate it, but the more voices that are speaking into the way in which we are communicating uh, the God's story to a culture, the better. And, uh, and so it becomes important for us to do this as a community activity and not just in isolation from each other. You know, but, I, go ahead, Andrew. With that, uh, strength in numbers is a good thing and a bad thing. Yeah, right. You know, and so I don't want us just to say like, oh, we have this goal to reach a local culture. Great. We looked at the context. Awesome. Now let's do this theology and community and let's all keep each other in check because if, if a whole bunch of people saying the same thing is a good thing, then please tell me why our culture seems to be running headlong into some really silly things just because it's louder and more people are agreeing with it. And that doesn't right. seem to be that much of a corrective or a help. No, you're, you know what, 100%. And that's why it, when we talk about doing theology and community, it always, you know, it's us doing theology together, but it, but it also encompasses us continuing to be in dialogue with the culture that we're engaging to make sure that we're connecting. And, and a, you know, I think the Western church is an example of uh, uh, a place where we've done theology and community and we have a lot of good theology that's out there, but oftentimes that theology isn't connecting with uh, the culture. And, um, and because we're no longer in conversation with culture, because Christianity has become, at least in the Western world, so institutionalized that it's accepted. But um, what missiological theology is doing and what ephesiology is doing is trying to call us back to uh, the, us in our thinking more missiologically about how we how we need to engage um, and so we're again opening up these conversations asking uh, the questions anew and understanding that uh, we need to continue to be in dialogue and continue to reflect together uh, on the way in which we can connect God's story uh, with the story of culture and it's not and again it's not just a, a willy-nilly connection here but as we are in this dialogue, we have to be asking the question, what is it that we see God doing in culture? And this, this, that question comes from an understanding of who we believe God is and him being active in culture. Um, again, we make reference multiple times to the Apostle Paul in Athens, who uh, saw and made that deliberate connection between that uh, alter to an unknown God and the God that he was presenting to the philosophers there. 
but he also does it through the study of their philosophical texts. And we see this also in Ephesus. So you recall, you know, when Paul in Acts chapter 19 uh, returns to Ephesus, he reasons and persuades uh, Jews in the synagogue for a period of time. And then uh, they apparently become obstinate, and, and Paul moves to the hall of uh, Tyrannus. And the Greek word hall, uh, sometimes is translated school, is the word where we'll get our English word school. Uh, skole is in the Greek. And that was a place in Greek uh, culture where philosophers would meet to philosophize. You know, they would be in dialogue with each other, uh, exchanging ideas and, and developing uh, their philosophy and learning their philosophy. And, um, and it's significant that Paul is there because that would have been a place, interestingly enough, in Ephesus, that would have been teaching the philosophy of Heraclitus of Ephesus, that Logos philosophy that we were talking about earlier. And, and it becomes all the more interesting as we uh, read that when Paul is in that school of Tyrannus, he's there for two years, and Luke makes the statement that all of Asia heard the Logos of God. Isn't that interesting? And mm -hmm. so it makes you wonder, uh, yeah, Paul must have known the philosophy, the Lagos philosophy of Heraclitus. He must have been reasoning that philosophy. And now Luke is telling us that all of Asia has heard the Lagos of God. And uh, so, the, again, here, here it is, Paul making that connection uh, with the culture. And uh, as what we're talking about in the Western context, we need to look and see and ask that question in each of our places. What is God doing? Uh, what do we see going on in our society, in our community? And, uh, and then how do we connect God's story to that story so that it becomes one story? Mm -hmm. And again, that's what John so beautifully does in his gospel. It seems that there is this ongoing tension that exists um, as we're, you know, as, as, we're, as we're talking about these things of like, we have this theology, this study and this knowledge and the wisdom and truth of God. And then there's the tension of having to enter into culture and then deal with that. Um, that quite honestly, and stop me if I'm going to get off, if I'm going to go off the rails here, but like, <laughs> here's like, this is what I'm, this is what I'm processing through is that it's so easy for us to get into a place of groupthink just as much as we want to avoid groupthink um, as doing theology and community, whereas a community, a tight knit community comes together, reads the word the same way. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is what we think. And next thing you know, what, we're off on the deep end somewhere, right? You started the cult. Yeah, we started. Yeah. Congratulations, right? <laughs> now, the, the, re, the reality is, is that we, we balance that by entering into culture, as you rightly said, Michael, interacting with other believers, and of course, interacting with the Holy Spirit, right? So there's these multiple things in which we have to interact with and engage with in the world, right? But on the converse, what I see so much coming out of um, the evangelical tribe is that we, we get to the point of the scripture and we say, this is what it says. You know, I got my Bible like this, right? This You're is what it, it says, okay? And, um, and, and this is the word. And then we just sit here and we go, here's the theology. We've done the systematics. We've done the biblical theology. Now go and do. Now go and be, right? And this is where the culture wars, I think, have come about where it's easier for us. And actually, I would almost argue that perhaps the our camp as Christians in the institutional legacy church have actually be, have actually been more succumbed to groupthink mm -hmm. because we've actually decided to go to war against the culture rather than engage the culture and let it kind of influence as to how do we read back into scripture. Now I know that sounds very scary and very dangerous to some people. And I, and I want to know like we have to balance that, but I, I don't like as, as we're having these conversations, I go, how interesting that we see Paul's theology and Paul's writings are influenced as a result of 
him responding to culture. John, we've established at the beginning of this conversation, was also writing in response to the culture and yet still writing sound theology. Um, Am I I off base here? Well, I think maybe a better question, uh, if I'm going to summarize everything you just said, is kind of, uh, what are some of of our boundaries then that help us stay within and not wandering too far one way, uh, which is away from sound theology and good doctrine, Mm -hmm. but then not wandering towards groupthink that makes us all sound like crazy people because we're all saying the same crazy thing. What are those boundaries? Is that a good summary, Matt? Yes, that would be the practical questions to be asking now as a result of my rant. (laughs) It's an understandable rant. (laughs) Yeah, right. And boundaries are critical for us to establish. And thankfully, you know, as we look at the history of the church, the church has established those boundaries of what good theology is. And so we we look to that early doctrinal development, uh, particularly in relationship to the doctrine of God. Um, and we see that boundaries are set uh, so that we, we know the limit of where we can go theologically. Um, uh, but you raised that other interesting question too, Matt, that I think really presents a uh, potential danger, and that is do we risk, uh, uh, I'm going to use my words here, but do we risk theological innovation? as we're yes. engaging uh, a culture. And uh, yes, we do. I, I mean, to be honest, we do risk that. Uh, and that's why we need those boundaries. And the early church helps to set those boundaries. Um, and in, and it's, these, mm-hmm. in these conversations, I, th- I think it's helpful for us that you know we keep going back to the first century. We keep going back to first century. And I know that I've had in some private conversations you know, as I talk about Restoration Church, I talk about ephesiology, it's like we're going back to first century, but then people go, well, what do you do with the last 2000 years of church history? Like, well, we're not throwing it out um, because it, for that exact reason is what you said. It, we, have, we have produced theological boundaries for us, and I think that's a helpful category and construct for us to continue moving forward as we look back to the first century. Am I, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, you are. But, and, um, and I agree. I mean, again, uh, uh, th- those boundaries are important. And we see throughout church history that there have been correctives to the way in which uh, we've engaged culture yeah. over time and the way in which the, particularly the ecclesiology of the church uh, developed. Um, and, of course, the, the theology uh, of the church as well. But um, uh, th- those first five centuries of the early church were critical particularly, as I mentioned before, in establishing the doctrine of God. Um, and, that's, and we need to always keep those things in, in mind. Um, there's so much that we need to unpack in, in all of this, um, but boundaries are critical. And it, again, I don't think we apologize for going back to the first century uh, in, in the development of what we see in the New Testament at all. Um, I think, though, as we take this missiological theological approach, what we see in Scripture is how they did it, and that's what's important. Um, it, you know, Paul deliberately connected the story of the culture with God's story. Uh, John deliberately connects the story of the culture with John's story, and now for us, we we need to be thinking in the same way. That, and understanding that there are boundaries uh, that, that are constraining us to ensure that we stay within the historic faith. I think something that we uh, often forget about is that these are real human authors right? under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And uh, sometimes I think uh, the, uh, we get caught up in our reading of Scripture that we just assume it's just God talking the whole time um, and using these different voices. And yes, he is speaking through um, and utilizing and under divine inspiration, but these are real human authors responding to real human interactions and culture that um, I think sometimes we just kind of neglect, or at least it, I feel like in my camps of where I've kind of come out of um, in my tradition of Christianity uh, through evangelicalism, I feel like we've just kind of, we've kind of so relied upon that, um, that divine inspiration aspect. And we just sometimes forget that there is this real human author behind all of it that 
you know, the human author is, is under divine inspiration, but I need to keep saying that <laughs> because it's true. Um, but also that we just forget that there's these real human things that are taking place around it that, um, sometimes we think, Oh, does that just kind of cloud the water a little bit? Does that just make it confusing? We just want to get the truth of God across and just tell people what God says. But I, I think actually when we negate that, we actually then get into these, these other areas that we just start doing culture wars. We forget to, how do we relate Christianity? How do we relate God to mm. the culture and, and help the culture understand who God is? Um, and I think that this conversation is really helpful in reminding us of that because that is, like you said, missiological theology. There is this, there's this real mission of God at work um, behind, behind the scenes um, that, and there's some real practical practices that we can actually start to uncover and see in the scriptures. I think and, there's something really that, that you're saying, Matt, it's, it's, um, there are two ditches, one on either side. So if we approach scripture, and one side of the ditch is it's a human author. And so then if people focus on that, then that leads to a lot of the current banter that scripture cannot be trusted because Paul was a misogynist and um, all the other things that people are going to try to point out or say, you know, we can't trust these men because they are awful men or they have these bad views that are ancient views and it's all tainted. So we fall off on the one ditch highlighting the authorship of man while negating, forgetting, ignoring the inspiration of the Holy spirit. But then we run over to the inspiration of the Holy spirit. We can, which is so funny. You focused on God too much. Don't do that. Um, Mm -hmm. But if we, if we, only then make scripture out of a, a recording of the Holy Spirit, then we forget the, the human element, then it allows us to come to scripture, touch base with it only to gather our theology, to figure out our points, to uh, kind of make sure are our, our, our boxes checked, and then go and approach culture with an idea of, I already have all the answers. I already know the things I need to know. Um, but when staying in between the ditches, then we are able, I feel, uh, along the lines of what you're saying, Matt, to be shaped by scripture in a continual basis mm. to say, who are these people and how are they interacting with the Holy spirit to then come at life with this Godward focus so that others can know God. And then that keeps us in a place of humility where we have to keep coming back to scripture. We have to keep being shaped by it. Um, because the Holy Spirit is in it, because human authors were writing to cultures, and because we need to touch base so that we can present the story of God to our cultures. Is that mm-hmm. crazy thinking? Yeah, no, not, I don't think so at all. I, I, I mean, I like what you're saying, Andrew. I think um, it, it's in that place that we're finding missiological theology. And, it, and it's so important for us. And this is what I think, in part, missiological missiological theology will do is that it addresses those uh, criticisms that you were talking about, Paul being uh, a woman hater. Uh, Missiological theology directly addresses that because it is coming at scripture with an understanding that Paul is making comments based on the culture that he's addressing as, as primary. And we need to understand what that is. And so when Paul for example, in First Timothy chapter two, when he is talking about uh, women in the church, that's written in a context where women were going to these consortiums and having these intellectual conversations with men. Um, uh, and Paul is saying Christian women are different; they're not like that, and there's a distinction there. So Paul's not hating on women. He is making a delineation between what a Christian woman is and what this woman who would go to these consortiums was, and that that, that needs to be different uh, in, in the context of the church. So missiological theology helps us to get to that place to understand uh, what the authors were intending as they were writing in a particular context. You know, another example that comes to mind is actually out of Ephesians 5, um, where uh, Paul is um, uh, uh, talking about um, what it means to be filled with the Spirit. 
And uh, he's, he's giving these instructions of how do we walk in love and how do we walk as, as those in the light. And then in verse, um, you know, 13 and 14, he says, you know, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. And then he quotes this. He says, therefore it says, and he's got this uh, quote, awake, O sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Now, what's interesting is that we have some Old Testament uh, allusions to the to this phrase, or it might even be a mashup, or it might even be something else of some sort of early creedal thing. But he was just kind of he was quoting something out of the culture that he was then relating to to the you know to the church and and helping them understand. So he, here he is using this kind of cultural reference, even just right there, and some of it you know obviously a biblical reference as well too. It's interesting you see these kind of nuggets um, mm-hmm. that we see kind of scattered throughout Scripture that. Paul uses, uh, some of the gospel writers use, and there's just these, these ways of just kind of tying back into the culture and just speaking about, Hey, this is what is, this is a common phrase in which you may have known about, you know, and then using that to, as part of their exposition, if you will, um, of relaying God's story into the story that they already knew. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And that's, uh, for us, all the more reason why we need to be thinking in, in the same way. That doesn't mean that we're creating new revelation uh, or we're being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write God's word. That's not what we're talking about here. But we are seeking God's wisdom mm-hmm. and understanding of how we can connect his story to that story. And uh, and there are a lot of pieces, of course, in scripture that help us to to do that. And, uh, and so it's reading scripture with a, the eye of a missiologist, if you will. It's understanding God as a missionary that he wants to connect with these cultures. And he is already at work doing something in those cultures. And now we need to begin to identify that. And I feel like, uh, too, that I just wonder if we have this is a helpful conversation because what what it's doing is I think it's helping us remind ourselves that this being able to speak to culture, know culture, understand culture, live within the culture is critical to communicating and continuing to pass on the story of God. Um, and I sometimes wonder if in some of our existing models and methodologies that we have lost sight of that and perhaps that this conversation helps reignite that in us by saying, there needs to be culture engagement um, and perhaps it needs to be in ways that we haven't necessarily have been practicing. What do you guys think? Let's stay out of the Christian ghetto. I mean, that's kind of the, <laughs> so there's a, there's a problem that a lot of Christians have. And I think I shoot, I could probably even be accused of it myself. Uh, but you know, we, we, make sure that our lives are as safe as we possibly want it. And uh, we hang out at church on Sundays and we hang out with our church friends and we make sure to attend our church meetings and join groups with our church people talking churchy things. So at what point are we actually intentional in getting out and knowing the culture and uh, interacting with it and, and, and doing so, so that we know it, so that the story of God can be brought to it as opposed to the reverse where we come home, we Netflix ourselves to death every night mm. and we, we are being then shaped by culture. It's not just a, we're not, we're not approaching it as observers, uh, but as full on participants and uh, people who are saying, you know, who am I as shaped by line of duty? Who am I as shaped by all of these other television shows that we want to just wash over us ourselves with? Anyway, um, there is, I got lost in my words there. I think there is too much of the, the Christian world that we've ghettoized ourselves in some aspects that are unhealthy. And then we have become consumed by culture in an unhealthy way as well. So we're, again, we're in the ditch on both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good, good point. Good observation. And I, I think it comes down to breaking down that sacred and secular divide Yes, uh, that we have so much erected in the church and um, realizing that we are as full members of the kingdom of God, those who have faith and hope and trust and salvation in Jesus Christ alone. We are adopted children into the kingdom, uh, and we are to live 
in the world, but not of the world. And we exist and walk as lights and as hope. Um, and uh, those who take that message and bring the message of the gospel um, and the hope of God uh, and to to the world, right? And that's our call. That's our mission uh, yeah. for here while we're here on earth. Yeah, Amen. there's actually a great website um, called thinkchristian.net. Uh, the tagline of thinkchristian.net is uh, – is that there is no, there is nothing that is secular, or there is nothing secular isn't a thing, and um, they really do operate in engaging the world around us and say what does God's story have uh, to do with all aspects of culture, movie, sports, music, tech, uh, the whole of it. Um, actually, based right there in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, but it's a fantastic website and it's a constant encouragement to say how does god's story impact all that he has made so that we are again reminded that there is no there is not one square inch that god does not look at and say mine um, right that's it's encouraging yeah amen i, I know we're not going to have time to address this in this podcast but um in our next one we'll want to talk more about what i've been calling a missiological theism and what that's trying to get at is uh, who is it that we believe God is? And is that view compelling enough and convincing enough that as we share it with the culture, they're going to say, wow, that's who God is. And so a part of missiological uh, theology is trying to understand how to communicate a compelling view of God so right. that culture gets it and they see, oh, I get it. That's that's my story, but that's God's story, and our stories are connecting. That's awesome. Yeah, and that'll actually be a great uh, way to end this particular uh, episode and this podcast and our conversation here today. And uh, we will look forward to having that conversation about missiological theism. I'll look forward to that uh, in our next uh, our next episode. But we, uh, as our listeners, we want to invite you to be part of this conversation with us by being part of our community. Uh, we invite you to uh, register and get online at ecclesiology.com. Register for free there, get some extra resources and join and be part of our online discussion and community. You also get early access to the podcast and the video portions of these. Uh, and so we'd encourage you to, um, to sign up there for free at ecclesiology.com. You can also like our Facebook page at, uh, just by searching Ephesiology. And be sure to like the page. We share content and have some vibrant discussions there as well. So we encourage you to do that. And of course, always comment, like, share the content, send us a message, ask questions. We'd love to engage with you and uh, also invite uh, some of those conversations into these podcasts. And um, and uh, sometimes uh, your questions and your comments are actually fodder for us. Uh, you can the scenes, but also allow us to give us direction on the things that you like to hear from us as well, too, as we continue this conversation. And be sure to subscribe to Physiology, the ways in which you receive your podcast, whether through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Uh, subscribe and be sure to like and give us a favorable review and rating because that's how other people find this content. But for Michael, Andrew, and myself, thanks for listening and watching, and we will catch you next time.